Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Heartland Politics Show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of Eastern Iowa and Northwestern Illinois. This is your host, Robin Johnson. And today, I'm very pleased to have back on the show, Jacob Rubashkin, who was on in September. He's a uh, a reporter and analyst for Inside Elections, which provides nonpartisan analysis. And I emphasize that, nonpartisan. He, he doesn't represent either party. Uh, nonpartisan analysis on campaigns for the U.S. Senate, U.S. House, Governor, and President. Jacob's based in Washington, D.C., previously worked for NBC News and CNN, and he was on in September. And I looked back and did a little research and Jacob was not one of the experts uh, across the country who was predicting a big Republican wave, which we heard of in the days leading up to the election. So uh, kudos to Jacob and Inside Elections for kind of having a better handle on what was happening out there uh, than a lot of folks were. But the bottom line is this election, uh, the way I look at it anyway, it's like the third or fourth in a row where the conventional wisdom was kind of uh, tossed out the window. Um what what happened? And now we've got you know some time in between. We still don't have all the results in, but enough. We we got a pretty clear picture about what happened. What, what's your thoughts, Jacob, on what happened that made this election be un, unlike, uh, say, a lot of them, where the party out of power picks up on average twenty eight seats? Yeah. Well, there, there are a couple of things that happened here. Uh, you know, you know, I, I think that the to the extent that there were some misses in terms of. Uh, what the pundit class thought was going to happen. In my mind, I think that's almost an overcorrection to the events of 2020, where the data indicated one thing, the Democrats were going to have a very good year. And the result was a, a different thing, which is Democrats only had a middling year and Republicans actually had a pretty decent year in the House of Representatives. And I think that uh, what that did was it seeded a, a lot of uncertainty in the minds of a lot of professionals, you know, people who do this for a living. And and so they were less willing in some ways to trust the data in 2022, or or perhaps they were they were more willing to interpret the data in 2022 with with a outcome already in mind. And so everything that they were seeing in this election cycle. Uh, they were filtering through this lens of, well, we know it's going to be a red wave. So how does this particular piece of information fit into that scheme? Where if you take took away that filter, you would have seen that the data actually indicated far more uncertainty about the potential final results. And what we ended up seeing was a, a, a an outcome on the more democratic end of the distribution, uh, given that major uncertainty. So- uh, to the extent that there were there were misses in terms of the the expectations, I think it's less about the data and more about the interpretation. To to your larger point about why this year turned out differently, perhaps than other midterm elections, where we see the president's party drop a large number of seats in the House on average, you know, between twenty eight to thirty uh, in a midterm election over the last hundred years. I think there are a number of reasons why. You know, the, the first thing I'll say is, of course, Democrats did lose the House still. So this is not uh, exactly like one of these 1998 or 2002 elections where the president's party actually picked up seats, right? Democrats did lose the House. They will be in the minority next year. But 
they lost it by only a handful of seats. They've they've lost five seats now. They'll probably drop another two to three. So we're looking at anywhere from a Republican net gain of seven to eight at this point. Um, the the reasons for Democratic overperformance that there are a couple that immediately pop the issues that voters seem to care about rather than just being the economy, inflation, jobs, were evenly balanced, it seems like, between voters whose top concern was the economy and jobs and voters whose top concern was either abortion or threats to democracy. If you add up the those two categories, they are an equal weight to economy and jobs and inflation. And while Republicans cleaned up on voters whose primary concern was economic, Democrats cleaned up on voters whose primary concern was abortion and threats to democracy. So it speaks to Democrats' success in taking those two issues and placing them or keeping them squarely in the forefront of the political conversation. So you had that going on. One of the really interesting things we saw is that the segment of voters who somewhat disapproved of Joe Biden's job performance actually voted in greater numbers for Democrats than Republicans this midterm, which is unheard of. In 2018, voters who somewhat disapproved of Donald Trump voted by a 29-point margin for Democrats in their congressional races. But in 2022, the inverse, voters who somewhat disapprove of Biden broke for Democrats. So it, it indicates that there is a substantial portion of those Biden disapprovers who are still unwilling to vote for Republicans. So you had that. And then you had independents and, and late deciders. You know, Typically, independents break double digits against the president in the midterm elections. At best, Republicans won independents by a few points. At worst, they were dead even. And Democrats seem to have won a lot of the late deciding voters, voters who made up their minds in the last two weeks of October. So you add all that together and you have the ingredients for a abnormal result, but still one that you know fits into the larger trend of the president's party suffering losses in a midterm. I saw some, you know, <laughs> you, you you watch Twitter uh, like I do, and, and uh, sometimes it's got really good information. Sometimes it doesn't. But I saw some evidence that the level of uh, excitement, of, of motivation for Democrats to vote finally equaled Republicans right towards the end of the election. That would seem to provide some evidence for what you just said, that late deciders may be going more Democratic. Uh, did you see anything in, anything in that uh, that you put stock in? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it'll, it'll still take some time to dig through the the final turnout numbers uh, and and really see uh, where we saw increase in turnout and, and kind of the relative differences there. I, I, I do think that in the wake of the Dobbs decision, what had been a significant Republican enthusiasm advantage turned into a dogfight for any sort of enthusiasm advantage that that democratic surge was incredibly important to democrats overperforming and and the issue of abortion becoming such a prominent 
part of the election allowed Democrats to match Republican voter enthusiasm. This was a really high turnout midterm. It did not end up breaking that record that was set in 2018. It will fall a little short. But at the same time, you know, the reason why you end up getting wipeouts like 2014, for instance, is when one party just doesn't show up. You know, Democrats did not show up in 2014. They lost House seats. They lost nine Senate seats. It was an absolute bloodbath. That didn't happen this time. Democrats and Republicans both showed up and uh, that 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 resulted in what what is ultimately a you know, it doesn't feel this way, but this is a status quo result. Right. We we are looking at either no net change or a Democratic net gain of one seat in the Senate and at most a Republican net gain of eight or nine seats in the House, which at the end of the day is is very similar to where we've been for the last two years. You know, it's it's interesting since then uh, what's happened and uh with with uh, former president trump announcing for president again this week uh, almost in defiance of what a lot of people are saying a lot of pundits but also a lot of the republican party are putting a lot of blame on donald trump um what uh you know the narrative right now is that the candidates that supported trump most vehemently and and cast doubt on the 2020 results mostly lost those that didn't won is that is that pretty much true jacob i mean i'm just testing this based on kind of what i'm picking up and what i'm hearing from others yeah you know i i think that it depends how much you limit your your scope to just competitive or even democratic leaning areas because i think if you widen your view to take into account all of the Trump-backed candidates who won in much more red states and districts, of which there were many because the former president likes to endorse, even in races where the candidates are a shoo-in, you will find candidates that buy into the lies about the 2020 election who won one office. But certainly in all of the highest profile elections, the in the swing states candidates who did not believe the 2020 election was stolen candidates who rejected those lies seem to have done better you know brian kemp being perhaps the archetype here in georgia um then candidates who bought into those conspiracies like doug mastriano carrie lake blake masters any number of Republican uh, statewide candidates who really suffered to uh, who, who struggled to to win uh, these swing states. And for the Democrats, it's interesting to me um, as I've as I've watched what's happened afterwards. I mean, they they breathed a collective sigh of relief that it wasn't worse. They held the Senate, especially it looks like, regardless of what happens in Georgia. But I think what one thing that's interesting to me is the progressives seem louder in taking a victory lap here. When um, I think there's evidence that, um, like in the Washington district where they defeated an incumbent, Kurt Schrader, who was more moderate uh, and then lost the seat, I'm not sure the evidence backs up that this was a big win for progressives. Um, if anything, it seems like the middle of the two parties are the, are the big winners ideologically. Is that a fair statement? Well, yes, yes and no. I, I think that there are always going to be 
individual races that if you try and extrapolate out this progressive versus moderate fight will point in one direction or the other. I think you you raise an interesting one with Oregon's fifth district. I, I would venture to say that that one is not nearly as clean cut a a progressive versus moderate uh, race as as some of these other instances, if only because Kurt Schrader was uh, so he was not a mainstream Democrat. He was a real thorn in the side to Democratic leadership. And I don't think there were very many tears shed over his primary loss to Jamie McLeod Skinner at the time, certainly. And I do think that there are outstanding questions about whether he would have won. I think he probably would have. But um, he, the the spectrum there was a little a little shifted. I, I, I do think that, um, you know, on the flip side, you see places like uh, New York's 22nd district or Nebraska's 2nd district that had nominated in previous years progressive candidates over more moderate alternatives who had lost, the Democrats who had lost. And this time around, Democrats uh, really pushed to have moderate nominees in both of those districts. And they lost again. Uh, both both Tony Vargas and, and Francis Canole lost those races, races that by all accounts, given the year, they should have won. So I think that there's there, there are examples on, on uh, both sides to point out there. I, I, I think that when it comes to the new Congress, there are going to be so many really interesting dynamics with with an evenly divided chamber or chamber where Republicans have a two or three seat majority. You know, on, on the Republican side, certainly you've got these twin pressures on either side of the caucus. You've got a number of Republican freshmen from states like New York that won these Biden districts in the Hudson Valley and out on Long Island who may well be a more moderating factor in the Republican Party who might not be willing to go along with the the party line on some of these issues. Guys like Mark Molinaro and, and Mike Lawler have already started to position themselves in the more moderate ring, wing of the Republican Party. At the same time, you've got the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. Uh, we'll see if Lauren Boebert makes it back to Congress. And then you've got a number of other representatives, freshman Republican representatives who fit fairly well into that ideological mold. Uh, thinking about some uh, representatives from freshman representatives from Missouri, Andy Ogles from Tennessee. And, and the reality is in a chamber where you only have one or two votes to spare, all of those people are the key to passing anything, right? Everyone can be Joe Manchin in a Senate that's divided to 18 to 17. And I don't know how Kevin McCarthy, if he is indeed the next speaker of the house, is going to be able to wrangle a caucus with those kinds of divisions when he has little or no margin for error. You know, I, I think that on the on the Democratic side, the the more progressive voices will will always have kind of a louder megaphone in the minority because there's less pressure to be cohesive when you're in the minority. They're simply, you know, it it, it if you don't need to keep the caucus together to pass bills, there's there's more latitude to break with party ranks and kind of establish yourself outside of the the mainstream when it comes to your ideological positioning. And so I do expect, you know, that the, the progressive wing of the party will not slow down, certainly, now that they're in the minority. Um but, you know, I think that the there is potential for an incredible amount of craziness in an evenly divided chamber from kind of a number of different vectors.
<laughs> potential for oh, a lot of craziness. Well, that's that we, we've been through a lot, so we're, we're used to that. Uh, this is Heartland Politics on WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. I'm your host, Robin Johnson, and today my guest is Jacob Rubashkin, who's a writer and analyst for Inside Elections, which covers, writes nonpartisan analysis for covering elections at the national and state level. Um, we're talking a little bit about what happened on uh, the midterms and why. And uh, Jacob has been an excellent analyst, again, in providing nonpartisan analysis here and kind of cutting through, getting through the weeds and, and looking at what happened. Um, I'm curious, as someone who, uh, you know, I think as my listeners know, I'm, I'm more middle of the road. So I'm curious about about your thoughts on on some candidates who ran against the, 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 the wave, so to speak, and did better among groups that traditionally have been against them. Um, I think I'm describing that right. Ron DeSantis is probably uh, the governor of Florida, Republican, is probably the most notable example where he won Miami-Dade County, which for our listeners is a traditionally Democratic county. He did very well among a lot of groups that uh, Republicans traditionally don't. So my question is, other than him, are there others from both parties that did better in, in penetrating, for example, on the Democratic side, did any of the Democrats do better in rural areas where Democrats have struggled? Absolutely. The, look to Pennsylvania, for instance, where John Fetterman and Josh Shapiro both won election, Josh Shapiro for governor, John Fetterman for Senate. Shapiro won by about 10 points more than Fetterman. Uh, that's for a number of reasons. I think Shapiro at the end of the day was a better candidate, but also uh, Shapiro's opponent really didn't run a campaign, whereas uh, John Fetterman's opponent ran a real campaign and Republicans spent $100 million against him. So I think there are a number of things going on there, but the reality is across the board, uh, both of those candidates did significantly better than Joe Biden in the rural areas of the state, particularly Western, Western Pennsylvania, if you look at the swing from the 2020 results to the 2022 results in both the governor and the uh, Senate race, you will see Western Pennsylvania zooming to the left. Uh, these more rural, white, working class areas really did rebound for Democrats. If you look at Michigan, for instance, Western Michigan, which is traditionally Republican, uh, old stock, you know, Republican strongholds. Gretchen Whitmer did quite well there, um, winning statewide by 10 points, of course, a significantly larger margin than Joe Biden put up in, in 2020. So uh, there are a number of examples. Um, you know, I, I think that it remains to be seen whether any of these are indicative of larger shifts or if they are unique to the particulars of their individual races. I think if you look, for instance, at um, Beto O'Rourke in, in 20, uh, 2022 Texas governor's race, he did not come anywhere close to winning. But the map of that race is actually quite fascinating because it, in, in some ways, um, it is not it doesn't really fit in with all the things we've talked about in terms of the trends in Texas, which is Beto actually did better than uh, Joe Biden did in South Texas and along the the Rio Grande River. And in those majority Hispanic areas that have been the topic of such consternation for Democrats over the last couple of years. But he did far worse in the rest of the state. 
even in the suburban areas where Joe Biden had done unexpectedly strong for a Democrat. And so uh, it, it just goes to show that uh, politics is complicated, it's messy, and it doesn't always move in kind of clean, neat lines. Um, you know, a candidate can uh, do really well in one area one year and, and not so great the next year. And sometimes that's indicative of a larger shift, but sometimes it's just a reflection of the particulars of the race. So uh, I, I don't think that Beto's strength among Hispanics on the South Texas border is a sign that Democrats have solved their problem with those voters. But it, it just goes to show that it's not it's not as uh, clean cut as some would some would like to make it out to be. Uh, locally, I remember us talking and uh, uh, we had three very competitive races on both sides of the river here in the Quad Cities and um, where those three races could very well have decided control. I don't think that happened, but boy, it, it almost did. Um, and they were... Um, uh, the, the results were part of a larger trend of, it seems, Iowa going further to the red and Illinois going further uh, to the blue, it looks like anyway. Any any thoughts or anything on, on uh, those three races and how, you know, the, the districts are so similar uh, culturally and economically, why one went one way and one the other is it just comes down to uh, the partisan preference? Look, I think Iowa has shown itself now for three cycles in a row to be a little bit of fool's gold for Democrats. They thought that they had an excellent chance in 2018 with Fred Hubble. They obviously flipped two congressional districts as well that year. Hubble fell just short in 2020. They thought Biden could win the state and that Teresa Greenfield was going to be the next senator. Not only did they... Uh, not win either of those races, but they dropped two of those congressional districts. And then this year, of course, uh, they lost their last district in Iowa, the third district, failed to flip back the first or second districts, did not come anywhere close to touching Chuck Grassley or Kim Reynolds in the Senate and gubernatorial races. So the, the big takeaway there is that Iowa is firmly Republican territory at this point. Across the border, of course, Illinois 17th district, this was a toss-up race by the end. Eric Sorensen, a Democrat, managed to hold this seat for Democrats uh, against Esther Joy King, aided by a very generous gerrymander, courtesy of, of the Democratic state legislature. And, and clearly that was the difference, right? This is a district that got about eight points more Democratic between 2020 and 2022. Uh, Sherry Bustos won a nail-biter in 2020, Eric Sorensen won by just about four points in 2022. I I feel fairly confident in saying that had this been the old district, he would not have won, but that under the new district lines, he was able to uh, eke out a victory. And uh, again, while it, while it didn't end up being determinative for, for Senate majority control, of course, uh, it, it's still, you know, every seat counts when you're talking about a, a chamber that's so evenly divided. Um, you know, the other thing I'll say here is that incumbency advantage matters. Uh, the the strength of a candidate like Marionette Miller Meeks, for instance, who won re-election by six points after winning her first race by six votes, is a testament to what being an incumbent can get you. And, uh, you know, I think that it, it is it is notable that 
the the two uh, women on the Iowa side of the border of this region, Mary Nat Miller Meeks and Ashley Hinson, were both incumbents this time. They both won by wider margins than in 2020. And in Illinois 17, it was an open seat. And so uh, it, it was uh, more competitive. Um, but, you know, I, I think that uh, the, these are this is an area that is always going to be highly competitive. Uh, you know, I, I don't think Democrats are necessarily going to give up on Iowa because those seats are still they're so evenly divided that they're always going to be very tempting targets for uh the the party to try and flip when they're you know sitting down and doing the math of the majority it's hard to overlook a, a seat that you know is is really at, at its core a 50 50 seat politically we got about two minutes left i'm going to try to squeeze two more questions in but uh i did see one report that uh republicans won the national u.s house vote by i think seven points which would seem to indicate that uh, the gerrymandering, which Democrats were pretty outraged about uh, uh, as, as far as helping Republicans, actually worked to their benefit a little bit more. Is that fair to say? Well, we'll see what the final numbers say. I think that once we get the rest of the vote in California counted, that'll come down. You know, the modeling that I've seen, you know, people smarter than I do is 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 pointing to a, a slightly lower Republican overall advantage when all is said and done. But uh, yeah, I, I think that um, the initial results seem to suggest that Republican gains were not distributed efficiently for the math of the majority. That is, Republicans did a lot better in places that were heavily Republican, and they did a lot better in places that were heavily Democratic. But they really didn't improve very much in the central most competitive races. And so what you end up seeing is a lot of solid Republican seats totally off the board, out of reach for Democrats, and a lot of safe Democratic seats like Jennifer Wexton in Virginia's 10th district, which was a Biden plus 18, or Joe Morelli in New York's 25th district, which was a Biden plus 20. Those are all of a sudden, you know, mid single digit races. Both of those candidates won by about six points, right? So you're getting a lot of Republican votes in places where they can't win and places where they're absolutely going to win. And that inflates that popular vote number, uh, but it doesn't do them anything for picking up actual seats. So uh, I, I, I truly don't think anyone was expecting this outcome. I don't want to make it sound like this was something that everyone anticipated, oh, Republicans are going to win the popular vote handily and, and barely win the House. Uh, but but it is it is interesting that, that the explanation seems to be that they did a lot better in heavily Democratic areas and heavily Republican areas, but not in the places that they actually needed to win to flip seats. In about 30 seconds, what were your biggest surprises, say one, two, three biggest surprises election night? I think biggest surprise is the the speed at which a lot of these Republican candidates who made their bones denying the results of the 2020 election acknowledged their own defeats. I was very heartened to see that. You know, We don't root for outcomes at inside election, but we do root for uh, clean outcomes. Um, we, we want results that are clean and understandable and accepted. And it, it was heartening to see that uh, a number of these candidates, uh, perhaps with the exception of Kerry Lake in Arizona, very quickly said, all right, I, I understand, you know, this election was fair. I lost. 
you know, that's the end of it. Um, so, so that was, that was a, a pleasant surprise. Um, you know, I think that, uh, democratic, um, the, the strength of a lot of democratic incumbents, I, I was, it wasn't a surprise necessarily, but it was incredibly notable that very few democratic incumbents lost. Most of the party's losses came from open seats. Um, and, and so again, speaks to that incumbency advantage. And then, you know, I got to give a shout out to Colorado's third district. This is a race that nobody saw. Uh, coming and Lauren Boebert may still indeed win re-election, but it is a nail biter. It's going down to a recount. You know they're they're in the process of curing ballots right now, and 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 this was not a race that anyone really expected to be competitive. But because of who she is as a candidate, and because of how well Democrats did in Colorado across the board, it became one of the closest races in the nation. And so I'll I'll you know I'll take a I'll take the hit on that one. That was not one that I saw coming at all. Outstanding analysis, as always, Jacob Rubaskin with uh, Inside Elections, uh, a nonpartisan source for election analysis. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time, both before and after the election, uh, to come back and look at this. It's really fascinating. Uh, again, I think I think um, another election where we the voters kind of went counter to what the conventional wisdom was, which was, uh, uh, of course, your, your conventional wisdom was the more accurate one because you weren't buying into the... Uh, the big wave. But uh, again, I really appreciate you coming back and I'll definitely get in touch uh, after the start of the year and we'll keep an eye on this, uh, <laughs> this fascinating uh, uh, American politics, uh, this era that we're in now. Yeah. Well, happy to, happy to come on anytime and chat. Okay.